Um, let's pray, and we'll start Hebrews. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, uh, Lord, um, for this magnificent letter of the Hebrews. Lord, we come to you uh, asking for help. I pray, Father, for myself that as uh, we enter into this, this great biblical book, uh, that you would help me in my study, help me in my sifting and knowing how to uh, teach this um, most effectively where the word of God is honored and upheld, uh, where the thought of this book would uh, make it out um, so that we would understand it, that we would understand the historical context that the letter was delivered, um, that we would see the principles and and ideas contained in this this work um, that apply to our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us um, as we diligently study, as we diligently work through this, not just to gain head knowledge, but that we would experience transformation in our lives. Uh, We thank you that by your Spirit, uh, you help us uh, when we ask that you would help us to understand what you desire us to know uh, through this study of Hebrews. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would guide us now. And it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. So as we start Hebrews, there's, there's, there's always like introductory, heavy lifting that needs to get done um, in order to teach one verse of any book of the Bible, the one who is teaching has to have a sort of a, an understanding on the whole or you end up in dangerous places. You can't just pick and choose verses out of context. And so I come today with about 50 pounds of information and I'm allowed to give out in the time that we have about eight ounces of information to you all. So it's, it's challenging. Um, we concluded Matthew after about a year and a half or so. Matthew is a historical narrative. It was written by uh, Matthew, uh, this great disciple, uh, led by the Spirit, sort of laying out historically uh, the person of Christ, his ministry on earth, with, uh, with, with an, an aspect or highlighting his his general purpose going through Matthew was to 
help the Jewish reader affirm and understand and have the sort of the, the backing the, the, uh, that it was authenticated maybe that Jesus did indeed fulfill what the Old Testament prophesied about the one who was the Messiah. So, so Matthew w- was strategic so that the Jewish writer, when he looked upon Christ, he could know with assurance that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised from long ago. And as I spent that time studying in Matthew, you know, months ago, I thought, oh, well, probably even before I started Matthew, I thought, oh, it'd be great to go from Matthew to Hebrews. Because there's, it's sort of like the continuation story of Matthew. Um, but then as I got closer to the day, I started going, oh, man, I'm in deep. What I, this is like a heavy book. A lot of my pastor friends are like, oh, I've always wanted to teach through Ma- or Hebrews, but I'm too afraid of it that I'm going to kind of, I've not done it yet. Uh, in the introduction to my study, um, Hughes, he wrote this about Hebrews. If there is a widespread unfamiliarity with the epistle to the Hebrews and its teaching, it is because so many adherents of the church have settled for an understanding and superficial association with the Christian faith. Yet it, that's Hebrews, was to arouse just such a person from the lethargic state of compromise and complacency into which they had sunk, and to incite them to persevere wholeheartedly in the Christian conflict that this letter was originally written. It is a tonic for the spiritually debilitated. We neglect such a book to our own impoverishment. So this book is filled with warnings, filled with admonitions, warnings for us to sort of wake up. Um, I don't know about you all, if you've ever had buyer's remorse. I have had all kinds of uh, buyer's remorse. Uh, Before I was married, I I didn't care about spending. It's like money, let's just, does it matter? I'll never forget the one flight I took where my back was aching. And then they have in the, the magazine and airplanes, you know, all of the sales items. So I was in Sky Mall magazine of some airline. I have no idea. And there was this uh, spine thing. I remember it was turquoise and yellow about this long. It had two ridges that sort of then had a little channel. And it was going to do wonders for my back. So I ordered this thing. I had visions on this plane as my back was killing me. I'm like, I'm done with a chiropractor. I spent, you know, whatever I spent on this thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it. I'll lay in the thing, and it's just going to kind of take my spine. And the days of having to pay for the chiropractor are over. As soon as the thing arrived in the mail, I knew I'd gotten ripped off. And I was like, what is that? Like, and I just threw it away. I think I tried it once or twice, but it was worthless. Um, Coming to Christ, I think sometimes it's that I've had sort of, I don't, buyer's remorse might be the wrong term, but, but moving from being apart from Christ to accepting Christ as your Savior to, to walking down that road, there are times of, is this really true? What's the point of it all? I used to be kind of like happy and I enjoyed my friends, the people I hung out with I liked. Now I'm with all these kooky Christians and like nobody laughs at that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And it's like, is this really the path I want to be on? Is this, 
And, and there are times when, it's, when there are things in our heart or external things that sort of cause us to drift away. And so this whole letter is sort of written to drifters. Those that had come to Christ, tasted Christ, began to walk with Him, get all fired up. But then as life and situations and things that we're looking at today, they began to drift away. And so this author, this letter is written to them to try to gather them back. Who is the author? This is a great question. This is one that Christians love to, to wrestle over, um, to discuss. I'm as guilty as the next guy. A lot of people just assume that Paul wrote it. There's not really much... Um, people, I think, just think Paul wrote it because Paul you know, wrote like everything else in the New Testament. So it's like, well, we'll just say Paul wrote it. Um, if you start looking at the text, and there, and there are those, I don't say that lightly, there are those in the past who, who thought it was Paul. And there, there's, there's some difficulties with that, but there's also, you could the, today nobody really thinks that Paul wrote this. Um, a case for Paul writing it, what they would say is that Paul actually wrote it in Hebrew, and then somebody translated it from Hebrew into the Greek, and then that explains why there's so many drastic changes in, in the style of writing. Um, most today don't think that that's the case. If you, um, uh, I have 50 pounds of information. I have eight ounces to share with you all. I think this is important. I, uh, Paul wrote, I think it's 13 epistles in the New Testament. Every single one, he boldly starts, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to whoever, with, a, with an opening statement. His writing style is very, very, very consistent and, and familiar, not even getting into the Greek, which the Greek in Hebrews is very different from the Greek of Paul's writing. Um, the author of Hebrews, um, it's not believed that he's one of the apostles, um, Although he's very close to the apostles in, in the teaching of this book, it's, it's, it's grounded in the apostles' teaching. But even in chapter 2, if you'll turn there, we're going to kind of flip around a little bit. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, really the second half of verse 3, we see that the author distances himself. Probably a bad term, not distancing and like he doesn't associate with them, but clearly he's not one of them. So in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Sort of one of the, we'll get there. But then the part that I want to look at, he says, After it was, at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us. Okay, let's pause. English, grammar, important. Um, So he says, At first it was spoken through the Lord. And it was confirmed to us. So us, if I use the word us, I say, hey, let us uh, go down to Starbucks. I'm including all of us and myself, and we will all go down that way. So we have this key. It was confirmed to us. Okay, so he's the author, identifies with those that he's writing to. He says it was confirmed to us by those Different category of people. 
So there's a like a, a them. To those, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So they're separate from this original hearers. What he's going to refer to is the apostles and disciples, and, and Paul certainly would have been one of those. Paul saw the risen Christ. All through his writing, he testified, I saw the risen Lord. He, he appeared to me. Not only that, then, Paul had the, the gift of miraculous work that others have not, that the apostolic age had that are distinct from others, just like it says here. Notice what he says. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them. Them is distinct from us. Both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his, whole, his own will. So he distincts, distinguishes himself from them, the apostles, that were given these great gifts to authenticate their message. Those who walked with Christ and he says, we got this confirmation from them. So he's really close to them, but he's not one of them. Huge. So, so I say all of this, and I'll probably repeat some of it. The author, it, probably, there, it doesn't seem very likely that it was Paul. Um, once you sort of exclude Paul from the authorship, it opens up a whole array of names like Barnabas. Um, Apollos is one that I kind of particularly like, but that means absolutely nothing. (laughs) But Apollos, a lot of people, there's a lot um, of men of old who you could make a strong case for Apollos. And if it wasn't Apollos, we don't know it very well would have been a man like Apollos. For in Acts 18.24, we read this about Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, which would be critical because Alexandria, it was sort of like the Oxford of, of the day. This is where all the great minds, the great libraries, uh, people from Alexandria would have been well-studied, well-read, well-written. Um, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. Um, but we don't know. Origen famously said that only God knows who the author of Hebrews is. And at, at, at the end of the day, we have no clue who wrote Hebrews. However, we can determine a lot about the author from his writing style. Um, like I've already showed, he was... Close to the original disciples, um, not one of them. His teaching is very much grounded and rooted in the teaching of the apostles. Um, If you'll turn with me to the very end of Hebrews, go to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 is fascinating because up to this point, really, for the whole of Hebrews... Most scholars would say, like in trying to figure out what literary genre it is, most would say, oh, this is like a, a seminary sort of position to defend the faith. Um, almost, it, they could say it, w- it wouldn't qualify as an epistle if this ending wasn't here. But the ending notifies us that clearly this is an epistle. Um, th- this writer was close to Timothy, Look at verse 23 in chapter 30, 13, chapter, verse 23. 
He says, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. So, okay, Timothy got himself arrested again. So Timothy's in prison. He's about to get released. If he gets released, the author of Hebrews says, I, I'll come to you. If Timothy gets released, he's going to come to you. And if he goes to you, then I'm going to be there with him. Which also lets us know that while we don't know who the author of this letter is, those who received it, they knew exactly who was writing this letter to them. He was known by the recipients. He was loved by the recipients. All through this letter, you see that word, us, we. Um, there's a closeness there to these recipients. On the recipients, just like the author, we have absolutely no clue who it is. Um, in verse 24, since we're right here, it says, Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. So when you read that at first glance, it sounds like that the recipient's writing from Rome to, to wherever because he's sending greetings from Italy. Um, I have time to sort of hash this one out. I'll, I'll just leave it at I don't really know the, the, the original language. It can go either way. Um, but from the context of Hebrews, by the title of Hebrews, it's believed that it's being written to a Jewish audience. Um, there's a number of reasons for this. You can go back to Hebrews verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Um, so the dating of the book, it's believed that Hebrews was written between A.D. 65 and A.D. 68. This is significant. So uh, from where we left off in Matthew, uh, just two weeks ago, remember the veil was torn in two uh, as Jesus was on the cross. Whole, whole lot of uh, symbolism for what that meant, um, what God had done, how he viewed the sacrifice of Jesus. We see that he appeared to the disciples. Um, you follow through Acts chronologically. Acts covers, a, I mean, a few decades as the early church is sort of unfolding. Uh, we see that Jesus ascended into heaven. But, but the temple, Judaism, it continued to operate and function. We as Christians removed some 2,000 years. We read what we read a couple weeks ago and say, oh, the, tail, the, the veil was torn from, from, heaven, or from heaven down. And we just naturally concluded that at that point they boarded up all the windows and the temple was done, which was not at all the case. The, the temple, after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, the temple continued to operate. There continued to be sacrifices the disciples continued to go there for prayer. Um, Christianity, as we know it today, really is a part of Judaism. There's, there's this, this, there's, we're grafted into to Judaism. There's this misconception today, and in the early church, there was really followers of Christ were they were sort of viewed as as a sect within Judaism, under the umbrella of Judaism, there were those, they had all kind of rabbis and followers, and there was this group that had followed this Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, who we would hold is the Messiah. And then in AD 70, everything changed. Nero was a crazy man. He burned down Rome, and eventually uh, the temple was destroyed as Jesus prophesied it would. 
turning over the stones, getting out the, the gold that was sort of inlaid in the stones. Um, at the destruction of the temple, this is where the line between Christianity and Judaism really separated. And the persecution of Christians began to increase radically. I bring this all up because we have to keep in our minds as we're reading through Hebrews that Hebrews is dated in AD 65 or 68 because the writer writes in a way that the temple is still undergoing everything. It's got its, I don't want to say it's like, I gotta be careful of what I say. I'm trying to edit myself right now. It's like the big, the big guy in town. There's programs and establishment and attractions and they can handle everything and it's like the mainstream. Everybody is going there. There's all sorts of cool stuff. And, and as we enter into the context of this letter from the dating, the temple's up and going. Christianity is this little small group in light of Judaism in Jerusalem. Persecution is now on the rise we know this. If you'll turn with me to chapter 10, I know I told you to go to chapter 1. I should have, you know, next time we do this, I'll rethink that. In chapter 10, verse 32, as he gets to sort of the, the, the pinnacle of, of where he's going, he writes in verse 32, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly because being made a public spectacle. If you're being made a public spectacle, that's not a good thing. Through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully, joyfully, the seizure of your property. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, don't throw away. I'll stop. We'll get to it later. You can go back to Hebrews 1. We know that during this time, those who had followed Christ began to face persecution. As they're facing persecution, their families, the big temples doing all their stuff. There are people who are following Christ, but they're drifting away from the things they learned about Christ back to the temple, back under Judaism, back under the law. And so this book this letter is, is filled with all sorts of warnings from slipping away from Christ. The first thing we have to address is these great warnings. The thrust of the warnings throughout Hebrews, which we'll look at a couple of them, it, it, it's the warning to don't slip away, don't drift away. Drifting is this, this, this key word um, throughout. Now, we might not wrestle most of us, or at least, like, I didn't come from a church background. I think this is the contrast between Romans 6 and Romans 7. I am a Gentile, pagan, totally, like, worldly in my before Christ. My propensity would be to slip back into the world. For those of you that maybe had, like, a, a legalistic religious background for whatever you were a part of, your your propensity would be to slip out from under grace, away from Christ, back into a religious sort of mode of operation. The context here, the slipping away, was slipping back into Judaism. But we all have things that we slip back to, and the warnings are just as relevant to us. 
one of the, the, there are seven warnings in Hebrews. We'll only look at three today. Chapter two, verse one, here's warning number one. The author writes, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away from it. So warning number one, stay close to the word of God. Um, there are many people that will use the word of God, cut and paste, to, to, to drift people away from the teachings. This is why I am so committed to taking a book of the Bible and going through it verse by verse, no matter how, many, how difficult, no matter how many hard subjects come up, just take Matthew, plug away. Now we're in Hebrews, we'll plug away. When we're done with Hebrews, we'll, we'll, another book of the Bible will come along. The, the reason for that is, it's so important for us to stay grounded, just to, to pay close attention to what we've heard, what was recorded, that God's revelation would be left for it, the, the, the whole of it. Not cutting and pasting to make, you can manipulate the word of God to make it say whatever you want. That's why whenever he says, hey, there's this verse and it says this, it's like, well, let's look at the whole context. Let's start by the whole book. And then let's start talking from there to see if you understand what's going on correctly. And we do that line by line. This is how we get fed. This is why I'm committed to teaching this way. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Hebrews chapter 3. I don't have a show of hands, but like for those of you that were here, you'll never forget it. The last time Michael Nichols was here. You guys remember Michael Nichols? A couple of you? He came up. Michael Nichols is the, the missionary we support in Tanzania, but he's in uh, Jerusalem right now working on uh, advancing his degree in, in Hebrew. Um, when he was going through a terrible illness over the course of like three years, he began to, he really desired to go deeper with the Lord. So what he did was he basically memorized Hebrews and then he put it to music. <laughs> And I have a copy of it. I'm not allowed to share it because he wants to fine-tune it. These musical guys, they just got to get it just right. So I'm texting him this week, and I said, hey, like, I, I, I like am drowning in Hebrews. You've got to give me all of what you had because I want to start listening to it to try to get the, the whole of Hebrews just ingrained in me over the next few months. But so I come to chapter 3, verse 8, and when they sang chapter 3, they got up here, little Malia, his little girl, she would scream out, like, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day in the trial of the wilderness. This is quoting from Psalm 95. Throughout, uh, throughout chapter 3, he quotes from Psalm 9. Don't harden your hearts. If you drift from the word of God, you're going to be led astray. And as you're led astray, what happens is your heart begins to harden. There they're wandering through the desert. All they want to do is get out of slavery. They get out of slavery, but then they grumbled. And so God had them wander for 40 years. And while they're grumbling, eating manna that takes like Hawaiian poi is the closest thing I could have in my mind. If you've had poi, you're like, what is this? <laughs> like, like you might be able to stay alive, but it's like, it's like paste. Uh, like when I was a kid, tasted better than poi. No offense if you're Hawaiian. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I repent. Poi. Like that's the closest I have. So they're grumbling. Like, oh man, back when we were in Egypt, we had and steak and all kinds of stuff. Like, and they began to grumble and get hardened against God. And so there's a warning from the Hebrew, the author to the writers, don't harden your hearts. It leads to bad places. And the hardest thing as I've like made the transition from being a military guy to being a pastor 
that I never anticipated that they can't teach you in seminary or Bible college is to see people drift away. That over the years, people, I'm not talking they move and they go to healthy church or they whatever. Like, I'm talking about people who drift from the Lord. People come, hey, where's so-and-so? It's like, hey, they're, they're drifted. So painful. Can't tell you how many times over the last 10 years I've like looked at Anna and I said, I wish I could just like grab them, pull them over my lap and get a spanking spoon and give them a spanking. It's like, wake up. And there's, there's a sense that this is what the author of Hebrews is doing. Go with me to the last warning we'll look at today. Hebrews 10.26, as he's, as he's getting near the end, some of these warnings are going to make us super uncomfortable, and that's exactly their point. I'm convinced that there's a lot of pastors who won't teach this book because there's some chapters like chapter 6 and chapter 10 that sort of make us feel really, really, really uncomfortable. But that's the point. He says, for if we go on sitting willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. So, so there's warnings here. And I believe fully in the assurance of salvation and the doctrine. I believe that if you're saved, you're sealed by the Spirit, there's nothing you could do for your salvation. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. The problem is we don't know who's really saved or not saved. That's how I grapple with it. But we're going to get really uncomfortable, or at least I am, especially as the one teaching it. Like I'm going on vacation in July right in chapter 6. I was a really nice guy. I could have said, hey, Joel, you just take chapter 6. I'll be in Lake Tahoe enjoying my time. And I'll come back when it's over. But I said, no, Joel, you preach on something totally different because I can't throw you into that. But, but we're going we're gonna to have to grapple with some things. And, and I love Alistair Begg, uh, you know, probably because it's like I feel like there's the Lucky Charms guys preaching at you. I love the content of what he says, but there's something like if it comes through a Scottish accent, it just sounds like, I didn't really pay attention. <laughs> and and, and on, when he talks about the warnings... He said, just because we believe in the assurance of salvation, we can't make these warnings fiction. Because they wouldn't have written, if, if these weren't true, the author wouldn't have written, there's a warning of drifting away. And, and we who are firm in our faith, you all have seen people that you would have never thought pastors walk away from the faith. Pastors do terrible things. All people who mentored and discipled you that suddenly they're living this life and it's like, what What happened? The, the, the guy who led me to Christ did a whole bunch of terrible things that eventually committed suicide. I'm grappling with, like, how did that guy win me to the faith? That's a whole other subject that I'm not going to go down that trail, but I, uh, I do think that he was a, a believer in torment. And so there's these, there's these warnings. They're good for us. And as we come to the warnings, don't quickly shut off your brain or think this would be so, so good for so-and-so to hear. When we come to these warnings, pride comes before the fall. That we should take great warning, this, the great heat in our own hearts. We're going to close with the song. The, uh, I'm blanking on the title of it just off the top of my head. Too many files are open. But there's a line in the hymn that we're going to sing that goes, Bind my wandering heart to thee, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take it and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Like if you're not honest with yourself to acknowledge that outside of you, there's a whole bunch of things that, that are appealing, that are not of Christ and that can sucker us away. 
And once you deal with those, even if you were to go live in the middle of the woods with no other people or no other temptations, you still have to deal with that within your heart, you have your flesh to deal with. And as I'm texting Michael Nichols, he said something that I thought was really good about the heart of of these warnings. And I wrote it down. I should have just printed it. And so Michael says this. He says, he seems to be holding back a bit. He keeps wanting to berate them, but not to lose them. So Hebrews is going to like, the author comes at us, comes at us, makes us feel really uncomfortable, makes us feel really uncomfortable. But it's like when you go fishing and you've got that fish that's a 10-pound fish and you have two-pound test on it. You're like, oh, I got to like, I got to like, I don't want the fish to get away by snapping the line. So there's this like reprimanding us, but wanting to bring us back in the fold, not to drive us away because Christ is greater than anything that we're being tempted by. Which is a good time to go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. I know I spent a lot of time getting here, but we need to understand the context. And so the Hebrews is going to start with one of the most technical, beautiful sentences. We have four verses, but there's only one sentence in the Greek. I'm going to read a really long paragraph to you, so hopefully you can pay attention. The New American Commentary on this opening line says the opening paragraph of Hebrews may be the stylistic apex of the entire New Testament. Nothing quite like the lofty rhetorical and literary expression of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 occurs anywhere in the New Testament. The intricate structural organization of the clauses, phrases, and words that constitute the single four-verse sentence reveals the author's literary skill. The structural weight of the entire 72 words in Greek rest upon a single finite verb and its object. God has spoken. The author's use of rhetorical techniques such as alliteration, meter, rhythm, phonic, and semantic parallelism, syntactical, semantic repetition, and chasm are all evidenced in this sentence. Thielsten claims that all of these verses provide one of the most arresting beginnings possible, combining elegance, alliteration, rhythm, rhetorical artistry, and unstoppable force with probably the most sophisticated and stylistic Greek in the New Testament. Okay, three of you enjoyed that paragraph. Um, what it's saying is this is a powerful... You start reading this in the Greek, like the first handful of words all start with pi. So all of the P sounds. So there's like a beauty in his stylistic of writing. This guy's not just a writer. He's not just a theologian. He's, an, he's, he's a wordsmith like no other. Obviously inspired by the Spirit. It's beautiful. When you come to it in the English, it's like, how do you unpack uh, all of these words, 72 words, with no period? And so you start with the verb and the object of the verb, like I read to you. The thrust of these opening verses is that God has spoken. So right away we learn that God is a God that is self-disclosing in his nature. Anything that we know about God, we know about him because he has decided to share with us about him. We don't lock ourselves in a room and try to meditate and hopefully that something will sort of ignite that we, God has disclosed himself to us. He's spoken to us. He's given us his word. 
Outside of the word, there is general revelation. The general revelation is not enough to save you, but it is enough to condemn you. Then we have specific revelation in the word of God, and we see in these opening verses that we see progressive revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, God has disclosed more and more about himself as we go along. And we see this. And so in the English, hopefully, like whatever you're trying to, hopefully it works for you as I try to sort of put all these words together to help us have understanding. The the main thing is verse 1. And halfway in to verse 2, So we have God having spoken. Really, there's just one word. In the English, we get it twice because the literary rules tell us that we can do that. So we start with God after he spoke long ago. So let's just kind of keep God in the center. God is a disclosing God. God speaks to us. He gives us his revelation. He shares the things that he wants us to know. Um, In the Greek, it starts with, in many portions and in many ways, it just starts with the past. We go back to creation. So, so back over here, think beginning. God in the past, in many portions, in many ways, over here, God has spoken. Um, one of the things I don't think I said during this service, but we know that this is written to Hebrews because the author just expects you to understand the first five books of the Torah, or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, with the details. We're not Jews, so I'm going to have to help us along. So long ago, in the past, God spoke in many portions, in many ways, in all sorts of different ways over there. He spoke to the fathers, and we read, in the prophets. So back here, God spoke all kinds of ways, prophets, dreams, I'd like to use the King James Version to be funny, but I won't for because I've grown and matured. Donkeys. He's spoken in all kinds of ways over here. So when you look at your Bible, you could have God. God spoke long ago in verse 2. We see in these last days he has spoken. They're sort of pairing one another. Over here we have to the fathers. Over here we have to us. Over here we have in the prophets. In many portions, in many ways over here. But over here we have to us and his son. So over here, God spoke in all kinds of different ways in the past. He used prophets. He used dreams. He used just a manifold different ways. And not fully, but, but now in these last days, that is right, that Jesus came to us, that would include us. In these days, God has now spoken and is speaking to us through his son. Period. Period. I... I uh, which, which, oh man, I got plenty of time. I was like, oh man, maybe I can skip over because I'm running for time. We want to be cautious when we start saying God spoke to us. When we deter, when we, if you leave the word of God, if you have a dream, great. Like if it, if, if it aligns with the word of God, okay, run with it. But maybe it could have just been that carne out of burrito. And if it deters from the word of God, don't, don't go running too crazy if you don't have what has been revealed to us. Because in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. And from this point, because the whole theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is greater. That's the whole greater sign behind us. That Jesus is greater than you fill in the blank. Whatever is causing you to want to detour, to drift away, to slip away from him, Jesus is greater than whatever that thing is. And so he begins 
everything from this point down in this sentence. For in his son, he has spoken. Now everything ties and holds together strings from the son, Jesus. We're going to learn about Jesus. What does he have to say about Jesus? I need to get a drink of water. So in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So we have the triunity of God. We, we see this back in Genesis 1.1. If you look at the Hebrew and it's in the English, God refers to himself as us in plurality. And we're told that Jesus is the heir, that he owns all things, all is, are his, because the Father has designated him as, as the one that's going to receive everything. Through whom also he, that's Jesus, made the world. We're, we're going to unpack this. We're going to look at some verses, Colossians coming up, but I'm going to wait till we get a little further along. We're told that in the beginning... When you read Genesis and it says God spoke and things were created, we're told throughout the New Testament that the agent of that creation was actually the second person of the Godhead, that Jesus is the one who is doing the creating. Appointed heir of all things, through whom also, so through whom also he made the world. Continuing, he is the radiance of his glory. Now, today's a bad day because we have cloudy weather and we can't really go out there. But you know those days, like especially if it's cold and crisp outside, but it's a clear day and you're kind of like shivering and you don't have your jacket on, you don't have gloves because you're like me and you just would rather pack light and freeze at night and not carry all these things. Then you find a spot in the sun and you just kind of sit there and you face the sun. And in the midst of the, you can feel the warmness of the sun through the rays that are coming off the sun. And if you think about it and you allow yourself to ponder I'm not sure, like I should have Googled it, how far away the sun is, but it's light year away, I'm assuming. It's really far away. And you stand there and you can begin to warm up. And the heat that you're feeling is coming from thousands and thousands and thousands of miles ago. And so what those rays of light to the sun are is what Jesus is to the Father. They're powerful. Okay, where am I at here? And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So I'm going to use a, I don't really do a lot of uh, demonstrations up here. Not a magic trick. But I'm going to show you something. It's probably not the great, but it's also a plug to come help us distribute coffee at Western Days. So this is a sleeve, right? Nothing is written on the sleeve right now. So imagine that I tell you, and I can't, I should have taped this up, but because I can see on the front, I have this little black box. Within here, our church logo exists. Now our church logo, our church's name is Grace Point Church, and so there's kind of like some words, and there's a font type, like the top half's a little bit thicker, and the bottom half's a little bit thinner, and it's a different, it's like a color, and I can't even tell you what color it is right now. I don't know. Then there's a, like a cross, and then there's some like leaves, and there's some roots. And I, if I was really good and creative, I could really kind of paint a picture to give you an idea. But you might be left sort of blind. I say, it's all in here. But now if I take this, and I slam it down really hard. Oh, too hard. There's like there, 
is the exact representation of the logo. Like from that little box, boom, onto the sleeve. There's our logo. Which terrible illustration when we're coming to Jesus. But it might work. Because what we're told is in the person of Jesus, if you want to see God the Father, the closest representation that you have is the person of Jesus Christ. It's what it says here. The exact representation of his nature. John the Apostle, in his opening gospel, John 1.18, he writes, No one has seen God at any time, only the begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So if you want to see and understand who the Father is, we look to Jesus. And the author here in Hebrews says the same thing. And Paul, another apostle in Colossians, is going to say the same exact thing. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now now this phrase, lunida, it's a Greek uh, lexicon. They write... In some languages, however, the closest equivalent of this expression found in Hebrews 1.3 may be causing everything to continue to be as it is by his powerful word. Now, I think we're all okay with the idea that God created us, God formed us before the foundation of the world. He knew, he, he called us into creation. It's a beautiful thought. It's a, I don't know what the word is, scary fearful to think that in this very moment as I look out at all of you and I can see you and my brain is processing everything and as as I'm processing everything, I'm breathing in air which is going into my lungs, which is going into my blood, which is feeding all my organs, that this is all happening because Jesus is actively holding me together and allowing this. At any moment, he can take that away. But I exist today because he's holding me together. And at that point, if you'll turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1, which I referenced earlier, Paul and Colossians, I went that wrong way. So you head towards the front of the book. So in Colossians, Ephesians, pop, <laughs> go eat popcorn. That's how you remember. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. So I almost told you, when you see popcorn, go to <laughs> there, right there. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, this is what Paul writes in this huge letter. Colossians 1.15, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. There we have it again. The firstborn of all creation, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created by him. All things have been created through him. He is the agent of creation and for him. So he created everything and everything is for him. For he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Scientists tell us the second law of thermodynamics happens because at at the molecule level, as things go along, what happens is they they no longer hold together and they began to sort of spread apart. And when you die, you basically, you're come undone. And, and we are here as long as he wants us to be here and he holds us together. And when our time is done here, he will take us home and our time is unwound. 
And if you go back with me to Hebrews, I should have told you to save your spate, but you should know better by now. So this Hebrews is like a spaceship just launching up into the outer, outer space at, at, at rocket speed. He's making his case for who this Jesus is, and we're not even done yet. We're, we're, we haven't even gotten to the best part. The best part. Midway through verse 3, or at the end of verse 3, let me if I can find my place. So he upholds all things by the word of his power when he made purification of sins. Two weeks ago when we studied the cross and Jesus on the cross cries out, it is finished. The temple veil is torn in two. There are huge earthquakes. He's buried. God's wrath was satisfied with Jesus' work on the cross that our penalty that was due us for our sins was made complete in him. And we're told that he made purifications of sin, the greatest news we could ever, this is the gospel, that we come to him trusting, believing that he made the sacrifice totally and completely, it is finished. Matthew sort of ends off, what happened to Jesus? Well, he appeared, last time we're at, we're we're in the Galilee region, and he says, go make disciples of all nations, and Matthew doesn't really cover, but we know he ascended into heaven. They went back down to Jerusalem. And now we're told that when he was done, he sat down at the right hand of, of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This word much better or better is one of the key words in all of Hebrews. It happens 12 times. It's sprinkled throughout the letter. We'll come to them. If you want to know exactly where they are, I'll be happy to let you know exactly where they are. But where the author goes at the very end of this opening sentence is that Jesus is greater than everything. He's about to lead into his next section, speaking towards the authority of the things that he said. This first two chapters is going to deal with angels. And we might think, what in the world do angels have to do with anything? But we know that Jews during this time, what they believed when Moses was given the commandments, when he was given the Torah, that they believed that it was an angel that came and gave the message to them. And the author's case is, if we take the words of Moses with such authority and they came by angel, how much more should we take the words of Jesus who is higher than all of the angels? And he's leading into this. Okay. Let's sort of wrap up here. I've gone long enough. As we go through this letter, we're going to see all kinds of warnings. Don't shrink back from the warnings. Don't turn away. Don't let them be like water on a, you know, water on a duck and just roll right off of you. Take them. Let them hit you. Let them go into you deep. Let them scare you. There are so many things that pull us away from Christ. Things within, things without. If you think that there's nothing that can cause you to stumble, you haven't been walking long enough because there are all sorts of people who claim to love Jesus that drift away. And it should terrify us. Terrifies me at least. And so then it's easy for us in the fear of sort of drifting away that we come up with uh, religion and rules and bumpers and accountability and things that, that we try to sort of enforce on our own strength and our own merit to keep us from drifting. And I'm not saying that putting 
barriers in your life isn't a wise thing. But if you put your barriers and your religion and your systems and your things above Jesus, then you're in trouble. Because the author, what he's doing is throughout this letter, he's going to point us to Jesus and that he is greater. I told you that there were 12 graders. The 12 graders, what they are, is that Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than the priest who they're making sacrifices on behalf of the people, but they're also having to make sacrifices on behalf of their own sins. Jesus is greater than the priest. He offers a better hope. He offers a better covenant two times in Hebrews. He offers better promises, better sacrifices, a better possession, a better country. Interesting is we have the National Day of Prayer that our hope is not in the United States. Our hope is in our future home. Jesus is better for us and he is a better spokesman, so we better listen. So we're ending with a song, Come the Fount of Every Blessing. And my prayer is that when we sing this song, it would actually be a prayer from our hearts. We're going to sing the words, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Oh God, take it and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. But then there's one line in there. Like, I want you guys to pray the song. Anybody here know what an Ebenezer is? When we say, hey, I want to raise my Ebenezer, we're like, oh, well, we'll sing it with confidence, but well, I have no idea what an Ebenezer is. So let me help you. Because I didn't know. I mean, I, like, I'll forget in two weeks too. <laughs> like I have to, hopefully I'll get it one day. So in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we read, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So all through the Old Testament, there's examples of these standing stones. They would, they would pile up these rocks and the kids would say, what are these pile of rocks for? And the parents would say, oh, let, let me tell you what God did. And so Ebenezer literally means a stone of help. One guy says this about this phrase in the hymn, when we sing... Um, here I raise my Ebenezer. The hymnist is, like Samuel, raising his stone of help as a tribute to God's salvation and grace. By thine help, I've come this far, and I praise you for it. So we're lifting it, recognizing that anything that we have, it's because of him. It's his grace, his salvation, his good work in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us, Lord, not to drift away. Lord, as we embark on the study of Hebrews, I pray that you would wake us up from our slumber, wake us up to the the, the reality that we're drifters, that our hearts are prone to wander, that we're prone to walk away from you, practically speaking. Father, I think many of us have seen people in our lives who have drifted or are drifting and we lift them up to you. Father, we pray for ourselves that you would help us to understand who who you are, who Christ is fully. That we would come to see that Jesus is greater than anything that we can face in this life. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.